are listening to Omnis Protocol. I am Charles, also known as Omnis, and I'm here with Patrick Dunford from across the Bifrost. What's going on, Pat? Hey, Charles. Um, things are going really well for me right now. It's a happy day. We've had a bunch of exciting news today. Um, and overall, I'm feeling really good. How are you? I'm doing very well. And so, listeners, what I'm going to do here is actually going to be a full, real interview, not just Pat and I talking about some random topic. I want to dive in and pick at, you know, Patrick and see what kind of interesting thoughts he has. And so, I've got one surprise warm-up question for Pat that I didn't warn him about. (gasps) So, now that we have actually seen Doctor Strange, we've been playing with Doctor Strange, how do you feel about how Marvel Crisis Protocol delivered the Patrick Dunford of the Marvel Universe? (laughs) <laughs> so this of course is a reference to uh tt on across the bifrost repeatedly referring to me as the doctor strange of mcp um and you know what i was a bit apprehensive um because it's always tough when you see a, a new character coming out and i looked at him and i thought he's pretty good but is he worth five threats and uh, i have to say now he is one of my favorite characters to play with um and i think he's been really well received overall i think they did the character justice on the table and uh yeah he's one of my favorites so i'm very happy to be associated with him yeah i i 100 am right there with you i was not that excited about him on paper but he has quickly become one of my favorite marvel crisis protocol characters so i feel like mm. i feel like amg did you justice is what i'm saying yeah, yeah. thanks amg <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's dive into some additional questions i have a couple that are not necessarily mcp specific but i just wanted to see where you're at gaming wise what do you think draws you into mcp or games like mcp as opposed to say something a little bit different but still competitive like chess or magic the gathering or like league of legends something like that hmm it's a great question i think there's some things that those games have in common um and they like i some of those games appeal to me as well right i i used to play a lot of mobas I still play some Magic the Gathering, mostly online. Um, and what I like about games in general is um, problem solving and refining strategies and kind of building up knowledge and experience and putting that into practice. Yep, 100%. Um, right, for sure. And then I suppose what it comes down to is then, okay, in theory, I guess, pretty much any game can let you do that stuff. Uh, so why MCP? Um, and... The thing that I think for me most determines what I love about games is when they have a really good fusion of theme and mechanics um, that I find particularly fun to play. So it's the fun, right? And fun is hard to, uh, well, it's subjective, right? You can't perfectly, you can't perfectly describe fun or say what it is, but I think what MCP does really, really well and other miniatures games that I've loved in the past, what they do well is they have some core mechanics that work really well for their game system and are very evocative for the kind of game they're trying to make. Um, and I think MCP does this really well with the scale of the game. Uh, having approximately five characters aside is perfect for a superhero skirmish game. It does it really well with some of the core mechanics like the power mechanic in particular. The power mechanic just makes this great pacing, right, where the game starts off slow and ramps up to be explosive and spectacular. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Lots of games have appealing things that I like playing about them, about strategy, about learning, about knowledge. But not every game marries the right elements to that in a way that I find fun. And MCP just perfectly nailed it. Yep, I agree. Obviously, I play Marvel Crisis Protocol as well, so I don't disagree with you on any of those points. Um, it definitely definitely highlights positioning in, in skirmish yeah. games, probably more so than some others. But Positioning is definitely super important in MCP more than some miniatures games. Um, but when I first started liking the game, I wasn't sure how important positioning would be. I thought, okay, this obviously positioning matters, but um, as I've played the game more and more, it's obviously become apparent to me that it's critical. Um, but I think I fell in love with the game before um, I realized that just because of the other design decisions that they've made. For sure. And some decisions just keep you playing, right? Sometimes yeah. it's fantastic models. So let's talk about some outside inspiration for you. I think with just about any competitive player, you're going to draw some influences from other things. And so I was wondering if there's any activities outside of Marvel Crisis Protocol that have actually impacted how you play the game. 
So, okay. So on the more casual side of things, painting impacts how I play the game. Um, if I'm <laughs> going sure. to a live event, I will only play painted teams um, and painted models. Um, and I do think the hobby aspect is important. And I do that for my own fun and also for my opponents, right? I would much rather be representing a fully painted team and adding to everyone's enjoyment. Um, and there's such a diverse range of characters in the game that I've got no problem like moving between them and just playing what I have painted. Um, and I can save the new hotness for another day if I haven't got it painted in time. Outside, outside of that, though, um, I think... So in terms of things that influence how I play the game, I think there's an element that I take from, I don't know, a bit of more, more kind of professional or academic stance in the sense that I think a lot about planning and about things like opportunity cost. And in my day-to-day job, um, I head up a large team of people and I'm often responsible for helping people make decisions and determining things like how we're going to run projects and who's going to be responsible for what. And Something like opportunity cost is a concept that I think a lot of people understand, but people are often pretty bad at applying. And uh, in miniatures gaming, I see it all the time where people say this model is great because of this thing that they do. And that is true in a vacuum. But of course, no piece in the game exists in a vacuum, right? It exists in the context of everything around it. And every piece in MCP, every character is in competition with every other one. and so like that kind of um work type thinking that I take from my job um I apply a lot in roster construction and in gameplay 100% that that doesn't surprise me at all there are some characters where you're like this character is amazing but you're like how do I fit this into the roster what's the opportunity cost of trying to include this one character that I will play in these specific crisis but not in others it mm-hmm. it can be very challenging and it takes it is its own skill by itself to you know make some of those key decisions so that's so you'd say that your work influences you pretty heavily yeah um i'd say so and then um aside from that it's obviously experiences in other games as well for sure yeah so just a couple of game examples like the, the game i grew up on the miniatures game i first started playing really competitive it was Warhammer 40,000 and from there i took away like one of my general learnings from that was the longer a threat range a model has, the longer a sphere of influence it has on the table. So the combination of its move plus range, generally the better it is. And that's something that I think is more or less true for MCP. Um, and then in War Machine, um, looking at things like how reliable a piece is um, and how it can uh, influence position on the table was very important. And that's something that I ported into MCP as well. I can't disagree with you on any of those. Not that I was expecting to disagree with you, but (laughs) so let's, let's talk a little bit about Marvel crisis protocol now. Well, more than a little, but I'm curious of all the games that you've played in so far, or you've watched on YouTube or you've read battle reports about, do you have a favorite game that was just the most interesting or the most tactical or coolest matchup? Like what's your favorite game so far? Ooh, it's, that's a really tough question. And it's difficult because I enjoy so many of the games for different reasons. I don't think, I don't like to label things as being my favorite, but I'm trying to think of the one that for me is most memorable. And actually, it might surprise you just because I have a reputation for being quite a competitive player, right? Coming from my background in War Machine, um, where I played competitively for a long time, and now in Marvel Crisis Protocol, um, I compete in the TTS leagues and that kind of thing and do pretty well. Um, but my favorite games usually are still the games that tell a cool story or where cool things happen. Um, <laughs> yes. And I don't know why that is, but I think it's because to me, like the highly competitive games are very interesting and they're very satisfying. But when you're playing in that way, you do lose a little bit of the fun. Like you give up the fun so that you can have a slightly more intellectual game. And I like doing that, but it is not my favorite way to play. My favorite way to play is to try and maximize the amount of fun and banter you're having with your opponent and the crazy things that are happening. Um, and so, like I said, I don't have a particular favorite, but examples of this would be things like um, playing in a crisis event in London where I said, okay, Black Order's out. I've painted my Black Order. I'm only playing Black Order. I'm going to play them in every crisis, no matter what. 
um, and just having fun, like learning Black Order and doing stupid voices for Thanos and figuring <laughs> out what Corvus and Proxima do, you know, and and that kind of stuff um, for me is is where you get the most fun, just playing games and enjoying them. I think I think that is an absolutely fair answer. There is some special moments that come up in Marvel Crisis Protocol that just sort of stick with us. And mm-hmm. I think your most memorable game is a perfectly solid way to answer that question. Okay, yeah, so sure. more more matchup related stuff. I'm really curious if you think there's a particularly interesting matchup between any two affiliations where you think some of the subtle choices are really interesting or how the the gameplay rolls out. Do you have any matchup in Marvel Crisis Protocol that you find particularly engaging? It's a really interesting question. Um I mentioned to you um before we recorded the pod that um I think my definition of affiliations might be just a little bit different from yours. And I'm basing that statement on having listened to your podcast and knowing how, how you talk and think about affiliations in general. And what I wanted to call out is I have a pretty fluid, well, that's pretty pretty. I have a super fluid view of what an affiliation is in the sense of, okay, it's basically two or three characters that share an affiliation plus whatever else you want. That's your squad. And like so for example um your avengers affiliation can be massively different if it's cap thor and black panther versus if it's cap black widow and hawkeye um, 100% yes and right so I, I the way i see it is there's such a hugely diverse number of options within each affiliation plus this ever growing number of affiliations <laughs> i think it's really hard it's like it's like you get this, you multiply them together and you get hundreds or thousands of possible matchups. But that being said, I'm still going to answer your question. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to duck it, but, um, the ones that I enjoy the most are when affili- affiliations are trying to do very different things and competing on very different axes. And an example of that would be something like Web Warriors versus Black Order. Where okay. the Black Order are trying to play the game of I am going to punch you to death. And the Web Warriors are like, whoa, 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 we don't want to play that game. <laughs> we're going to do the best we can to survive and mess you around. And we're going to try and win on uh, victory points before you can punch us all to death. And I really like that kind of dual race that's going on. Where as the Black Order player, I am racing to murder these spiders before they can win the game. And as the spider player, I'm racing to score as many victory points as possible before I get murdered. Um, and I find those matchups add this really fun tension where both players are racing to different objectives while simultaneously trying to slow the other person down. I agree. And I also agree there are basically subcategories within each affiliation, right? Because you would take like your style of defenders from the TTS season. Mm-hmm. which didn't really use pentagrams a lot right. and was utilizing Gwen and Shuri a lot. Or you could take the new like pentagram hype Modoc defenders where you're like, I want to play demons and drop uh Modoc right in the middle of the board and start shooting you right away. They're both defenders teams, but they're almost a completely different matchup for you to think about. Oh, completely. Yeah, they have completely different threats. And actually, I just want to throw this out there because in the past on Across the Bifrost, I've said that I don't think Pentagrams are very good. And what I said was I was skeptical about the card and I wanted someone to prove to me that it was good before I before I saw the light. And I have to say, Utility Cookie, well done. Um, his, <laughs> his defenders list is awesome. And his use of MODOK with portals is spectacular. I much prefer his defenders list to the one that I took. Um, and I've completely recanted my opinion on portals based on his play. I've been massively impressed. It's yeah, it's a scary card. It, and right around the same time that you podcasted about it, I had just released a game where my portals backfired on me and almost lost yeah. me the game. Yeah, and that so was I was, <laughs> I was also in a like, I don't know how I feel about portals, but mm-hmm. now the the demons plus portals feels like maybe one of the most meta impactful teams to think about like what do i do against this yeah exactly i think it might be the most powerful thing you can do right now for the time being it's it's really really strong and i was uh rooting for utility cookie in his games because i really liked the innovation that he had 
Yeah, it's a it's a crazy team for sure. I'm I'm excited. It's one of the things I'm excited for down the road. I'm like, what what is going to end up being the counters to this? Like, while it exists, mm-hmm. like, what are the what are the best matchups for it? We'll 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 have to see. Time will tell. Okay, so yeah, uh, my next question. I think we can all agree that playing the game, reviewing other games, discussing strategy, these things are all fundamental for player growth. And I'm just kind of curious if you think there's an optimal percentage breakdown for each of these things. Is it should it kind of like one third, one third, one third? Or do you feel like playing is massively more important and it's like 50, 25, 25? Um, what do you think? What do you think is the best breakdown for a player? Hmm. I think it varies a little bit based on a couple of things. So of the three, right, we've got playing games, we've got reviewing games, you've got discussing strategy. So um, I think if you start with none, like a zero baseline, like you're a brand new player, I think playing games is by far and away the most important thing. I think you just have to get games under your belt to understand, to like to grow this deep understanding of how the game works, how characters interact how probabilities work. Um, And I think if you don't play the game enough, then reviewing games and discussing strategy are kind of useless because you don't have the foundation to actually have good discussions or to have a good understanding of the game you're watching. Understanding the... the The like the range one from the crisis. You don't quite realize how much things are in this small area until you're actually playing it. Yes, absolutely. And also, like... Yeah, you need to have this foundation of your own experience to be able to make judgments about what other people are doing. Do I agree with that or not? Am I surprised about this or not? You know, and that all that stuff yeah. aids your learning. So I think playing is probably the most important for that reason. It's like the foundation. But I think you also then will get to this point where after you've played a bunch, um, a small amount of reviewing and discussing strategy will help you a lot more than playing a few more games. I, I think you get... Uh, diminishing returns to any one of these activities, right? And you're going to get the most benefit from doing a bit of all of them once you have that base of a lot of games played. Agreed. So that still brings up the actual answer. Do you think it's kind of an even mix at the highest end? Um, I think... Hmm. So I think you can do them kind of together in the sense that you can play a game, review it, and discuss strategy, right? Yeah, um, 100%. And and I think that generally speaking, if you're looking to get knowledge about anything that is new, playing with it is going to be really beneficial. Um, but also you do need to see how other people are playing things and you do need to get other people's opinions about things. Um, you don't necessarily need to, but I think it really helps to get different opinions about things because that can really accelerate your own knowledge and learning, right? You get all, the benefit of all of their played games and experience in a much shorter time. So I guess what I'm saying here is I do think playing games is most important. Um, and I think that continues, but as you get more and more experience, the relative importance goes down. So I think I would give it something like 40, 30, 30, 40% Perfect. to play and then splitting, reviewing and discussing strategy. But I'd throw in this caveat that it also depends a bit on your availability of resources. If you have all the time in the world to play, um, then play more. Um, and if you are lacking like knowledgeable friends to talk to and discuss strategy, then maybe don't do that so much, right? But assuming you have access, like reasonable access to all of these things, I would go for slightly preference to play, but not by a lot. I think I agree with that final final breakdown. I think if I were to answer the same question, it would probably be 40, 30, 30. One of the things that I've noticed lately from editing my own YouTube videos is as I'm going back through the game and I'm noticing, I'm noticing such key moments in the game where it's really easy to do that in reflection. But I had no idea during the game, just how important some really subtle decisions like, do Mm -hmm. I interact with this extremist console and heal for one, or do I save the power to use a key superpower? Like some of those decisions are so critical and you don't realize it in the moment until all of a sudden you're like, crap, I don't have the power to do this thing. Or, I now got days because I was had one health down and it's it's absolutely interesting to see some of that that you just can't catch during a game. So it's been this has been a question that's been on my mind a lot as I've been Mm -hmm. examining how I proceed. So 
Yeah. I don't know. I want to, do you mind if we go a bit deeper on this one? Cause I think it's super interesting. Okay. Um, I think you're right about all that. I've noticed a few things to the contrary, which is like when you're reviewing how somebody else plays a game, you are kind of stuck with the decision they made. If yep. that makes sense. You can see the decision they made. You see how it plays out. But I find that when I'm watching a game, I'm more thinking about, okay, that's the decision they made. Is it good or bad? Rather than all of the potential decisions they could have made. Because I think when you're in the driving seat, when you're actually playing the game and you're thinking about all the different options, there's a lot more going on there that as an observer, at least for me, I don't tend to process. And so if I'm playing a game, I get a much better understanding of this is the range of possibilities that this model in this situation could do. Whereas if I'm watching somebody else play, I see one of those possibilities happen. And similarly, discussing strategy, it's really frustrating to me to discuss strategy with someone. And you can sometimes just tell you've not actually played in the situation you're talking about because (laughs) there's subtle or important things that happen with these models interact that you're not accounting for because you're thinking of it in two black and white terms, right? And people often, like, especially when it comes to things like hot takes and models, right? People make hot takes, obviously, without playing the models. And they will be too quick to decry something as being good or bad without thinking about, you're just thinking one of an infinite number of different game states, right? And like exactly. a good example of this would be someone like Bullseye, where Bullseye is a model that came out recently that people have genuinely been unhappy with. It's been my experience talking with the community. And the most common thing I hear people say is, his four dice attack doesn't generate any power. Therefore, he can't spend one power to do one automatic damage. And I just think, have you played this model? Because it's that's not true, right? And like Sometimes <laughs> he won't deal any damage. Sometimes he'll spike and get all the power he needs for the game on his first attack. Sometimes he'll be attacked and then he'll have enough power. You know, sometimes there'll be an objective that gives him power. There's all these different gameplay scenarios that happen, but people don't consider that, right? They just get stuck on one and then that can really skew your opinion of a model either too high or too low. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we were talking about Doctor Strange at the beginning of this podcast, and I think we both on initial just looking at the card were like, eh, meh, like he seems okay, but Mm -hmm. I don't think, I'm not sure anyone looked down at him and accurately realized just how good he was going to end up being on the table. And I think there's been, I think there's been quite a few instances where you do just have to put some models on the table and experience them firsthand before you're really going to be able to appropriately analyze. But that's also where talking with other people, I mean, there is no way that all of us can play a hundred games with every single character every (laughs) month. And so sometimes when someone's experimenting with someone and you're like, I've really liked this character and this affiliation and you're like, Oh, interesting. And they get to share their experiences with you suddenly in a very compact time period, you can gain a lot of information that really was Mm -hmm. them accumulation of many, many games. And suddenly you're like, Oh, that's really interesting. Maybe I'm going to include something like that in one of my teams and see how I feel about it after absorbing that information. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And for me with Doctor Strange, the thing that I learned through play that wasn't obvious looking at the card is exactly how tough he was. In the sense, you look at, oh, he can spend two power to increase his defenses. That's probably pretty good. But how often is it going to come up? And then you play a game with him and you're like, geez, this comes up basically all the time. Um, (laughs) This character is way tougher than I thought he was. And then that massively changes how you play with him. And then that further changes your opinion of him. Yeah. And um, another recent one, I've been kind of surprised. I mean, I understand Gwen is a great character. And I think when Mm -hmm. Gwen and Miles came out, Gwen started popping up in lists all over the place. And I was a little less hyped on her. And I've been playing Miles probably as much as other people have been playing Gwen. Mm -hmm. And I am surprised how often I love what Miles does on the table. And Mm -hmm. it's it's so interesting how two very kind of similar characters draw totally different appeals from different parts of the community. Um, There's a lot to test. There's just so much to test. And it's only growing, right? As every new release comes out, the number of combinations kind of multiplies. My gosh, we got our work cut out for us. Do you remember when like Asgard came out and the Discord is just lighting up with people going, and myself included, where I'm like, man, it is so hard to narrow down to 10 characters. It's so <laughs> yeah. hard to get down to eight tactics cards. And <laughs> we were such sweet summer children. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's funny. It was like, I remember the first, the first roster discussions were like, okay, which of the core set characters do you cut for Modok or Hulk? And people were like, oh, maybe Doc Octopus. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny how, how times have changed. 
Yeah, now it's, you know, I, the decisions <laughs> of just what to put in your bag can be harder. Really hard, um, yeah. Okay, so let's proceed on to another question. What, uh, sorry, not what, how do you end up deciding whether to include a second affiliation in a roster? What are kind of the key hinge points that either say I'm going to stick with single or I need to add another affiliation? So I think for me, there's probably two hinge points. The first one goes back to something I was talking about earlier, which is the kind of game I want to play and the kind of experience I want to have. And sure. I am very happy to play a very fun game of Marvel Crisis Protocol where I say, I am playing this affiliation because it's cool and I like the characters. And I love how the game is so well balanced and rosters are kind of allow you enough options they're diverse enough that you can say that i think with any affiliation and still be perfectly competitive um but then the reason i would take a second affiliation is either i can't make up my mind about which cool thing i want to play with and i just want to take more toys to play with on that day um or if i think there is a slight edge to be gained competitively from having two um and really that then comes down to how I think my affiliation deals with particular crises combinations. And if I think my affiliation has particular weaknesses that I also think a second affiliation will shore up and that I think my roster can handle the overlap. Um, So that makes sense. I think maybe that's kind of hard to follow. So maybe to give a, a good concrete example, right? I really like playing Web Warriors. They're one of my favorite affiliations to play casually. And my Web Warriors team will almost always have three Wakandans in it because Shuri, Okoye, and Black Panther are superb Web Warriors. I won't necessarily take Wakanda Forever or plan to play Wakanda, even though I could, just because I think Web Warriors and Wakanda play a very similar game, especially if I'm playing all the Wakandans in Web Warriors, right? I think they play similarly enough that there's not a significant advantage to picking one over the other. Obviously, that's debatable, but that, that's my opinion. I think if those teams have the same characters, they're pretty interchangeable in how they're playing that game. Um, I might be much more tempted to throw in a couple of Asgardians so that my team, which is, which is all the Web Warriors and a bunch of Wakandans, has a better game into Deadly Meteors, which is an example of a secure crisis that I really don't like playing with Web Warriors. I fundamentally agree with all of that. I I actually want to particularly call out, I, there's something that I've heard you say both in the forums, sorry, not forums, but in Discord and on podcasts, mm-hmm. where when people are discussing multi-affiliations, you're like, sometimes you just have to stop and ask yourself, yes, this is easy, but does it actually help my roster? Yeah. Right? Sometimes you're like, yeah, it's easy to build a cabal slash criminal syndicate roster, but... And obviously, variety always complicates things for your opponent. And so when you're mm-hmm. like, I have to think about these two different directions that influences decisions. But sometimes it's like, yes, just because you can and it's easy to do doesn't necessarily mean it makes the roster significantly better. As you said earlier in the show on opportunity cost, like you are still yeah. sacrificing something for a tactics card slot or that could be opening up room for as you said, Asgard to help you with deadly meteors, that sort of thing. And I think those are really key decision points for roster design. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that I, people don't do enough with roster design is kind of the, the homework after you've got your roster of characters of figuring out what actual teams are you making for different crisis combinations at different threat levels. And when you do that homework, a lot of the time you can realize, actually, there's a slot here that I just don't need. Or there's this character that I'm taking that I'm never really fitting into any of the rosters I'm going to play with this combination. Um, and I see a lot. People take stuff that they like um, in the affiliation because of things like the leadership or the team tactics card synergies or the interplay between characters, but then don't do the work of thinking, okay, but can I actually make it all play together? Like, I don't need four different 19 threat teams. I need to figure out, okay, if I'm playing 19 threat, I'm playing evacuation or fires plus something else. Um, so, for example, if neither of those are my roster, if I'm playing fires, I'm playing my extracts. If I'm playing evacuation, I'm playing my secures. Given that, given that knowledge, what teams am I actually making? And then cut those characters that could come in at 19 threat but aren't going to because of how your roster is set up. 
absolutely critical. There's so many times where I get asked, well, what would you do in your team if you played this crisis combination? I'm like, well, I'll never play in that crisis combination because I don't bring yeah. either of those two. So I will never yeah. pick either of those two. So it'll never have both of them. Yeah, exactly. And especially it's the extremes. People ask that, right? What will you do at gamma wave at 20 points? You're like, mm, what? <laughs> These things are not going to come up. You're like, I'm not bringing alien ship. And yeah. I also don't have gamma wave. So this is yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is an interesting combination that can happen for certain teams and may happen in the TTS finals, but <laughs> <Can't wait. laughs> um, may not, may not happen for us. So. Okay, perfect. I think that's absolutely awesome information. Now, with the the banned and restricted list that has hit all of us recently, I'm curious if you have any insight as to how you have been deciding which restricted cards to take for a particular roster. My insight here is not as deep as I wish it was because I have... So of the restricted cards, I have a couple that were already my favorites. And so yep. I have not really innovated. And the ones that I was preferring were med pack and field dressing. Um, I know you are not a big fan of field dressing. This is correct. Um, and I know on this very podcast, you have, um, uh, you have sledged TT for saying that field dressing was the best card in the game. <laughs> I think field dressing might be the best card in the game, Charles. I think you're way off on this one. I love it. I think it's it's it swings games more than any other card, uh, with the possible exception of Wakanda Forever. Um, and I really hesitate to ever take it out of my rosters for that reason. I mean, it is it is one that I admit is a very strong card. It's also up against <laughs> some very strong cards, mm-hmm. and it it is. I mean, obviously, if you look at say the TTS finals and even the top eight. It is one of the most commonly taken cards. I think Medpack is mm-hmm. still slightly above it. I think it, depending on the team, uh, it's it's challenging. I'm not sure there's wrong and right answers. I can see, mm-hmm. I can see why someone would take it and why someone wouldn't. But I like I feel like I should take it more. But then I also like like the way that teams have gone without it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, there's there's no card that you want to be taking 100 percent of the time in general. And I think. I, I I'm guilty of taking this card maybe more than I should. Um but that that for me is the card that I'm most uh reluctant to cut. And it's because um I really enjoy it whenever I'm playing a wide team with more activations than my opponent, having this option when you go last to bring up a day's character and get a double activation at the end of the turn can be that so huge. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's so good. And then even if I'm playing smaller teams where I'm trying to keep priority, like if you have a smaller team of valuable characters, being able to undo an opponent's dice spike that has, for example, days Modoc or Thanos can be such a big swing um, that I just think the card has so many great applications. So that for me is the one that I still bring. And then it's between med pack patch up doom prophecy embrace as to what is the other one um and i don't think you can make a wrong answer here i also don't think you have to include any of them um if i'm not sure i think med pack squeaks in just on efficiency it's the most cost efficient answer um to increase your survivability and i think that's it's the i think that's why it's the most popular in general but patch up is better if you have characters that have huge power generation that play close together it might be better for like Red Skull and Modoc pairs, for example. Um, Doom Prophecy is superb when you have characters that have a plan to work with it in a way that no other card is. And Brace is becoming uh, a card that people are looking at again, right? It was taken because it was efficient. <laughs> and I was already cutting it for my rosters before it got added to Band and Restricted. I don't think I've played with Brace for a while. But now that Magneto is on the horizon and his throwing is just so terrifying, I can see it squeaking back in if he becomes very popular. So I guess I'll throw out a little bit of some of my thoughts and maybe you can, you know, bounce some ideas off me. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. I think Asgard is probably the affiliation that I play the most. And I have leaned towards Medpack and Patchup with them because obviously, just mm-hmm. as you said, it's a very, it's a lot of power generation. And it's one where I want to kind of keep the characters going. And it's just naturally worked out where it's very easy to like patch up as you're moving past a character, that sort of thing. And I also feel like I like those two with Black Order as well, where I just want to keep their health up and I don't want to lose an activation. 
necessarily, but I don't actually care if they get dazed at some point. That's okay. I mean, obviously it, it hurts with Thanos a bit, but I often feel like I want to keep the keep recovering health as opposed to using a card to get one health back. Mm-hmm. So, but I used to say that I was like, Brace was the one I was considering the least. But now as some of these teams like, say, Pentagrams with MODOK, and I've been playing Doctor Strange in both Defenders and Avengers uh, and Web Warriors in Wakanda even. And I feel like some of these characters that are a little bit more vulnerable to the big throws have made me considering Brace for those teams, Mm. right? Where you're just like protecting a MODOK or protecting Doctor Strange with a Brace can both be huge. Yes. But uh, I agree with you there. Yeah, I think maybe I should try field dressing a bit more. I just hit, I hit a long string of games where it felt like I wasn't ever allowing my opponent to use field dressing because I was just keeping the characters too far away. Um, and if I was getting the last activation, right, then there's no way that they could act, you know, activate someone, move over, put one health on it, and I can't just snipe off that last health point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it drifted out, but it is such a strong card. And especially on Gamma Wave, like if you didn't have field dressing in your matchup um, against Sploosh at the end of the TTS last one, that seems like an absolutely critical matchup for field dressing. Yes. And actually in that matchup, uh, his field dressing was superb, right? Where he was able to field dressing the MODOK that I dazed and then patch up and med pack him. Hey, something you can't do anymore with the BNR. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so. I got a very lucky game-winning spike to um, days. Well, I say potentially game-winning, but I got a very lucky spike that could have swung the game massively in my favor by getting a days on Modoc quite early, and then field dressing plus those cards completely undid that and reset me back to the start. Right, and we but we have access to Wong and Doctor Strange now. So even though patch up, you may not be able to do all three. There are certainly going to be teams that could still field dressing med pack and then wong someone right yes yeah and doctor strange is a character who tends to be near a lot of his allies and have a good amount of power so he is pretty good for using field dressings and then healing people if he's having he's having one of those good games where he's got a lot of power going yeah for sure very interesting um i like i like being called out and tested and you're right i think i probably (laughs) should play field dressing a bit more but uh it's hard 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 choices it is and it's only getting harder yeah more cards coming out every month yep and there could be future cards added to the restricted list here's what Mm -hmm. okay i did not actually prepare this question for you um i will say the card that started hitting my rosters almost 100 percent of the time after the restricted list hit ended up being disarm Mm. and i am now at a point where i am feeling like disarm is such a phenomenal card that if it hit the restricted list i might still be taking it And I'm just kind of curious, because I noticed you have been playing Disarm for quite a while as well. Yes. Do you think Disarm is potentially on the same level as some of the other restricted cards? I know that's kind of a hard question, but just curious as to how how your experiences with it have been so far. I think it's very good. Um, I I do like to think of myself as being an early adopter of Disarm, and I played it a lot in TTS Season 2 with good success. Um, I rate it very highly. I think its effect is more powerful than something like Medpack um, because it neuters the entire activation of an opposing character. Um, so it's a very powerful effect. but And the cost is cheap in the sense it's only two power split between two different characters. But the requirement of having two characters be within range and the fact it is an active card, so you have to play it during your own activation, those two things combine to mean that it's not good in every situation. Um, if your opponent has priority, their most powerful character is going to get to blast you and disarm is not going to save you, right? And you will have some team compositions where having two characters in range of the target to disarm is actually a severe cost. Um, especially if that target is like a long range blaster like Modoc, right? Who spends his whole time being at rage four and moving people away after he zap them. Um, it can actually be difficult to get the disarm you want. And I play with disarm a lot. And even more now after Beardar, I have it in my roster pretty much all the time and I will usually take it in my five. And I have found that in the games where it's good, it's superb. But there are a big chunk of games where you have a plan to use it and then you just can't get that plan to materialize. Um, 
It depends a lot on what your opponent's playing. If they're playing a very VP-focused team that is just throwing and pushing you, it doesn't do anything. So it's a bit more of a specific counter card. Um, so I guess I'm saying I don't think it's on the same level as those other cards because it's not as ubiquitous. It's not as good universally for mitigating damage. It has to have more specific targets and it has to have a more specific setup. It's also one that's a little bit harder to see the end results of it, right? Because mm-hmm. I've also had a disarmed Angela still days characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, absolutely happens. <laughs> uh, and so sometimes it, it changes a character's um, interactions and sometimes switching a character to um, a crisis focused plan may actually hurt you in the long run. Yes. But and also it's hard to sometimes look back and go, well, because I spent these power on these characters, did it also prevent me from doing something later on? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it, it's it's interesting. OK, yeah. so let's got a couple more questions for the primary episode and we'll wrap this part up. Are there any popular cards that you think people are currently taking too often or maybe too reliant on that people should potentially be trying other things in place of? So if this was before Band of Restricted and Magneto, I would have said Brace for Impact. Brace for Impact is <laughs> a card that everyone loved and I thought was not really worth it. And now people are taking it less, but you might need it more. So that one is right off. Yep. Um, unfortunate. Um, cards that I think people are playing too much. I do think people play med pack too much. Um, med pack is good because it's efficient, but it doesn't have that big an impact in the game. And it's easy to quantify the effect it has when you use it in the sense you're like, great, I got three hit points back. That's helpful. But I don't like, if you watch games, this is one of those things that you can learn from playing, but also you can learn a lot from watching. If you watch games, how often does that three hit points actually matter? A lot of the time, I think people put it on the wrong character where they just med pack somebody because they've taken damage, ignoring the fact that this is a low defense character in an exposed position and they are going to take damage again. And your med pack hasn't really helped progress the game state in a way that you would want. I think med pack is at its best when you have very high value, very resilient characters, where you just need anyone in your team to be able to keep that character high. When you have characters like, you know, Thanos, uh, Magneto, right? Doctor Strange with the Soul Gem. And you're like, okay, this character is a, a linchpin in my strategy. And I need whatever happens when a character activates, they need to keep this character topped up. Then med pack is at its best. And I think people use it in too many times where it's not, and it's not the right card for their roster. I think that's fair. I think in some of the the wider teams, it may be a good one to cut. Like if you start yes. playing the six plus character teams, I think I agree with you mm-hmm. that it can be one in those situations. It's never going to have that much benefit. And you probably just want each of those characters spending their power on specific superpowers, that sort of thing. Yes. The other one that I think this card is great. And I always feel bad for I always I feel a little bit guilty for saying people play a card too much because aside from the BNR cards, I don't think none of the cards get played too often. But uh, one that I think is often used poorly and maybe suboptimally is advanced R&D. And I think advanced R&D is a great card, right? Being able to move power around on your team and get get characters to key break points where they can use a superpower they otherwise couldn't is really good. And it feels especially good on turn one. But what I've noticed is a lot of the time, People end up using advanced R&D just to move one power around, just to boost an attack from like being a power generating attack toward being a spender or to make up for the fact that they took a risky play and it didn't work. And this goes back to what we talked about opportunity cost, right? I think often the opportunity cost in advanced R&D is too high. Like it is so often just used to move one power and that is usually not worth a team tactics card. I agree with you there. That's one that... I've always liked advanced R&D. I played it off and on. I remember playing it at LVO and I like it, but I feel like I see it a ton and there's so many people mm-hmm. like build it into like some like pretty specific plans. And I, it's always a, it's always a curious selection for me because I like it as if you have an eight slot and you don't know what to put that card, what card for that, I can absolutely see Advanced R&D being a good one for that, especially like say you're going to play a triple roster team, like triple affiliation, almost anyone can make use of it. And so it can be a good variety pick. But I agree. I think that's one that 
people may rely on it because they like planning out that first turn pretty extensively. Yes. And don't get me wrong, I see the appeal of that, but yeah. I just think it's too often it's like a piece of the puzzle and you're not really thinking about how much all these pieces are costing you. I feel like Wong is often the character that's guilty of that as well, where people throw Wong into their roster because they have a very specific plan for turn one that requires one power. And they're not thinking in terms <laughs> yep. of opportunity cost. It's like, yeah, that's great, but is that plan really worth this two extra threat character? Right. It's easy to examine a plan and go, this plan looks good, but then you're also going to go, well, if I build this differently and I don't include Wong, is the plan better over the course of the whole game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't. Maybe I don't get such a strong opening move, but I have other stuff instead that might be better. Yep, it's it, those are hard decisions to make, and I think opportunity cost is your is your key phrase there, and it's something to keep mm-hmm. in mind. Okay, yeah, sure. so um, one final question before I wrap up the primary episode: Which character do you feel is significantly better than the community thinks that they are, or are currently giving them credit for? Okay, so which character do I think is really underrated? Yes, that is essentially what I'm asking. I know we talked about <laughs> Bullseye a little bit. Whatever, we just talked about Wong a little bit. It's I know it's a hard question. Yeah, but um, I, I won't I, pick either of those. Um, fool, I've got I've got an answer for the one I think is most overrated. But you didn't ask me that question, so I know <laughs> who do I think is the most underrated. In the past, I would have said Venom, but he's risen in popularity now, and he's he's in a good spot. Okay, this is maybe not the spiciest take, but you mentioned before Miles Morales versus Gwen. I am definitely on Team Ghost Spider. Um, Ghost Spider is my pick right now for the best three-threat character in the game. I adore her. She makes almost every one of my rosters as that flex three spot. Um, She's so versatile in so many different positions that I think she is absolutely superb. Um... But to your point, I think a lot of other people have their own preferred options for that three cost, and she does not get as much table time as she deserves, in my opinion. Interesting. I mean, I think the community thinks very highly of her. I think she is one, like, even I, you know, I consider her better than Shuri, for sure. Mm. And I think she is in conversation with Valkyrie for the best three threat character. And that's a, that's hard competition, but I think that's... Yeah, I mean, that's where I put her too, so maybe we do have a similar opinion of her. Yeah, I mean, I think she is really, really solid. And there have definitely been some teams where I've started going, like um, Black Order, for instance, like the ability to have Gwen pull people into the danger zone of Corvus and Proxima. So they're still sitting safely on your side. Like, there's some crazy things you can do with her. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm gonna have to say that that one that one doesn't qualify. I think the community thinks she's amazing. And so right, okay. I think I'll give you another one. That's okay. okay. My my other one is Hawkeye. Hawkeye is a character that I think a lot of people like and a lot of people hate. Um, I really like Hawkeye. He's a cornerstone in all of my defenders teams. My defenders always starts with Doctor Strange, Hawkeye, Valkyrie. Um, and the reason I like Hawkeye, he is incredibly mobile. Um, and um, I mentioned before how I value threat range, right? 40k yep. told me if you move far and shoot far, that's really good. And Hawkeye does that better than anyone, right? He has such a big threat range that he can impact anywhere in the table. He can scalpel out key characters. He's very good for applying damage on targets you've already hit. But I also like the fact that with his um, different wild effects, and especially in Defenders where you can also apply Hex, he has this alternate game mode of he just debuffs targets and gives you another way to control the game. Right, like Thor is a lot less scary when he's been hexed and shocked or hexed and slowed or whatever it might be. And yep. especially in Defenders, you can quite reliably add two and sometimes three status effects to a character to the point where even Asgard is debilitated by them, which is really, really strong. Um, and then the main reason I think Hawkeye is underrated is he generates huge power over the game because he's got a really good power building attack. Five dice and you get to pick between physical or energy is superb. It's one of the best power builders. And because he is not spending that power, except in small amounts to move or to ignore cover, but because he's so mobile with hookshot, he's awesome for team tactics cards. And I think this is one of the reasons why I love field dressing, for example. It's incredibly hard to play around field dressing where your opponent has a Hawkeye. And he can swing to that point in the table where he is not threatened by a push or a throw um, because he's activating late in the round. 
Um, he can be relevant with his attacks, and then uh, your first, um, the next turn, you can have him use field dressing and activate a character. Um, he, he makes it really difficult to play around team tactics cards in a way that a lot of other characters don't. You know, I think this is a particularly... I'm glad I made you pick another one, because obviously... <laughs> I am not a huge Hawkeye fan. I don't play him very much. Every time I've played him, I felt like it's he's been a little underwhelming. He'll have some good turns, but he mm-hmm. always ends up underwhelming me overall. And obviously, I don't play field dressing very often. But I really like your insight here, where even though I don't usually play either of those, I think mm-hmm. the, the, the sum of the parts is better than them separately right Mm -hmm. where i think you're absolutely correct if you're doing both of them i really like it yes and you know what i think we've hit on a recurring theme here with the discussion of medpack as well that i hadn't really thought about but i think is a point worth mentioning which is i think too often people pick tactics cards in a vacuum without thinking specifically about how they interact with their characters and how their characters can leverage them and the bnr cards are particularly guilty of that right but as I was saying before, Medpack is at its best when you have a high-value target you want to be healing outside of their own activation. And we just discussed field dressing and how it works with Hawkeye. I think maybe a good thing that some people could consider for leveling up their roster construction is how do my specific characters interact with the cards I'm taking and what is my plan for each of them during the game? Right. And this is a perfect example of how sometimes just reviewing a game wouldn't necessarily give you the information, but the fact that we're discussing it and specifically bringing point to Hawkeye in conjunction with field dressing creates a lot more flexibility that the average roster wouldn't have. Where one, he's going to have the power. Two, he has the mobility. Three, he may activate very late in the round and isn't critical Mm -hmm. to necessarily do early. So all of those things combined make make it function in a way that if you were just looking at the stuff individually and not separating yourself from it and going, well, what you know, obviously when you're watching a game, all of the decisions have already been made. They've already brought field dressing. They've already brought Hawkeye. You don't quite realize mm-hmm. it's the combination that can make it work so well. Yeah, all right. exactly. So because you had brought up that you had a pick for the overrated, I think I would <laughs> get endless amount of crap if I did not let you answer the question after you're like, hey, I have an answer that you didn't ask. <laughs> so which which character do you think is the most overrated? Oh, and it's not even close. This character is way overhyped for what he does, in my opinion, and that is Taskmaster. Taskmaster, to me, is a very below-average character. He is super mediocre, and I cannot understand why suddenly everyone and their mother is playing him in their roster. Like, everyone is taking him him often as their third affiliated slot. Um, I know you talked about this on your recent pod with Jay, where you talked about um, the different slots in the team, and I understand that having a resilient three-threat character that can be affiliated to any team is appealing. But he just doesn't do anything. He just walks around at medium speed and gets thrown or pushed off things or attacked sometimes, maybe. Um, He doesn't generate power well. He doesn't have good threat range. He doesn't have any control. Um, He only has a good game if his strike attacks does good damage. And that is not reliable, especially on a character with pretty mediocre mobility. Hmm, interesting. I do think he is one that is perhaps a bit overrated. I remember listening to Danger Room and um, Dizard was talking about how a great he thought a mnemonic technique was. And at the time I was like, eh, spenders. I don't really like spending yeah. power on spenders. And then in like the next game I played, someone double mnemonic technique Doctor Strange and I couldn't <laughs> re-roll. And I was like, oh God. I mean, it was... It was cosmic yeah. portals, I think, or spider infected. So my character got pushed into the position to like set this yeah. up. And I was just like, oh God, this is so awful. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh God, I'm taking these two seven dice attacks. I can't reroll against them. Um, yeah. So I do think he's good, but like sometimes I've heard people say they think he's like the best three point character in the game. And yeah, no, I'm like, not, not that level. I, I agree. I think his spender is great. It's a very good spender. And it almost makes up for his lack of charge in the sense you can move and just do the spender and that's okay. But it's just not really good enough. And I would compare him to Drax, who is a character that so rarely makes people's rosters. But if you look at them, like they're both medium movers with short range attacks who are really tough. But then Drax also adds a push and a stun and a throw into his kit. And I just look at Taskmaster, and he's basically Drax without any of that. 
they're doing the exact same game role, but Drax has all of this control on top. And I don't understand how people can love Taskmaster and not be including models like Drax. Well, if Drax had Rogue Agent, I don't think we would talk about Taskmaster at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It's fair. But I guess my point is, I think there's a lot of affiliated characters that are not rated high, but actually are better than Taskmaster. For example, Crossbones um, does the same thing as Taskmaster uh, in Cabal and does it better. He's got more control than Taskmaster. He hits harder. They're both tough. Yeah, he's a bit slower, but they're both sort of so slow it doesn't matter. I think for some reason Taskmaster's got a lot of hype. And that's not to say that he can't be played. I think he's great in Criminal Syndicate. I think he's got a couple of other teams that he slots in well, but I don't understand why he's suddenly he's everyone's favorite choice. Yeah, I think he I think I like him for math in some specific situations where you want to play like if you wanted to play Wakanda with Corvus and Proxima and so you're going kind of murder and so like the ability to switch a Koye for him at a specific threat level. Like I like him for certain situations, but I, I agree mm-hmm. overall he's probably a, a bit overhyped. Um, I didn't plan to answer this question, but I'm going to say I think uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, is drastically underrated. I've been playing mm. him a lot in Defenders. And the more I've played Gwen, it's made me value Spider-Man more, where now there's some times where I'm like, okay, I love this. Say like your team, right? That you were playing for Defenders a lot, and you were playing Gwen in kind of the fourth or fifth slot in that team. And sometimes I could see just, oh, my team bumped up one threat level, but I want to keep Shuri. I want to keep Hawkeye, Valkyrie, and Doctor Strange. And you're kind of just going, would I rather add the Soul Gem to Doctor Strange or potentially maybe upgrade Gwen to Peter Parker. And I think both are very viable decisions. I'm considering Peter in a lot more teams than I ever thought I would. I think that is a great call out. I really like Peter Parker and Defenders, and I wish in hindsight that he had been in my roster because I think you're right. He fits that slot perfectly. Um, I think in a lot of ways, he's more appealing in Defenders than he is in Web Warriors just because he brings something that's affiliated to that affiliation that no other character does. Right. Whereas in Web Warriors, he feels a little bit more redundant. He's doing the same thing as everybody else. Um, and yeah, I, I like that call. Good take. Yeah. And he's been my, he's been my, my number three a lot. Now I'm like, well, maybe I'll try Wolverine in that slot too. Just kind of see. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I like, you know, try out some different options. But yeah, I, I like Spider Man yeah. even. And as we said, Defenders, um, I think the two rerolls when Doctor Strange gives you two more dice become even crazier because you have less times where you're like, well, I already rolled too many successes. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And Wolverine is an interesting point because like, when you have options inside the affiliation, it just massively increases the total number of options available to you, right? So Spider-Man is cool in Defenders because he gives you a fast, objective-focused character that you otherwise don't have... You've got some options. You've got maybe Daredevil or Hawkeye, but he does it in a unique way. And Wolverine is interesting because he gives you a hyper-resilient option at that fourth threat level in the affiliation that you can then support with Doctor Strange and maybe just make this unkillable tag team. That's kind of interesting too, right? Right. And I I just think a core of Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Spider-Man, where your first three characters can all move someone off a point reliably every single round. That's yes, that that's awesome. But um, yeah, yeah. Who knows? We'll we'll see how things build down the road. Maybe the Wolverine version will be like Defenders X-Men roster, maybe a thing. So Mm -hmm. we'll see. All right. Well, I think I'm going to wrap up the first part here. Pat, these questions and the answers to these questions, more importantly, have been super fun to hear. Got me, got me definitely evaluating some, uh, some decisions for me in the future. I do have some additional questions for Pat, which we're going to do in the bonus episode. So if you're supporting me on Patreon, go ahead and hop in, check that out. There's going to be some more, but understand that's not something that everyone can do. And if you're looking for more Pat, I hear he has a great podcast, right? Uh, Across the Bifrost or something. I do. We've been doing Across the Bifrost now for a year. We are running up on doing our one-year anniversary show very soon. If you don't know us, you can check us out. I tend to spam the Facebook pages, but um, just Google Across the Bifrost Patreon and we have all our episodes up there. Absolutely. And if, you, uh, if you're if you following me on Twitter, you can just go to the link that I have for my link tree. I also have Across the Bifrost tagged in my link tree. So if you want to go check them out, absolutely love the show. I listen every week. I get sad when uh, when it doesn't release right away. And I'm like, I need my, my ATB hit, right? <laughs> 
right. Yeah, sorry about that. We'll we'll do our best to make sure we're on time. Hey, I've I've been there too. It happens to all of us. I'm just saying I'm an addict, Pat. You got to keep that in mind. I start I got getting the shakes. But um all right. Well, I look forward to these additional questions. And again, listeners, check out Across the Bifrost. And if you want to support on Patreon, I got more questions for you to hear. So until the next one, I'm going to say the most OP thing that you can do is evaluate the opportunity cost. 